Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Jeremy B. Jones. He is an associate professor of English at Western Carolina University, where he teaches creative writing and directs the Spring Literary Festival. His new book is Bear Wallow, which is published by our friends at Blair. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It is an honor to have you here. Uh, And my first question for you is one that I am very interested in uh, as I co-direct the North Carolina Book Festival here in Raleigh. How have you been doing the last couple (laughs) of years under COVID-19 and what challenges has this time presented for you both as a professor and as a director of a literary festival? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm naturally built to be an optimist. So Mm -hmm. I think there have been some interesting um, unexpected outcomes from having to shift to hybrid and virtual festivals. Um, One of them that was pretty cool is that during our last festival, we realized that these Zoom events are not, they can't work like a face-to-face reading. And so we tried to do all these silly things. Like I would do a little game show in the middle where I would ask questions or bring in surprise guests. One of the things we did was have students read the author's work, prepare questions and come on and kind of have an end conversation with them. Hmm. And that's something that I think I want to keep doing, even if we do return to some sense of normalcy, like getting Hmm. the students involved in that conversation. But I'll say that it's been hard. I don't know what it's been like for you, but I've spent a lot more time looking for money than I ever want my job to entail. You know, there've been so many grant proposals and so much grant writing. Um, everybody's kind of scrounging for the little bit that there is to keep their, keep their things afloat, but we've, we've managed, but it's been, um, a lot less talking about books and a lot more looking for money. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. The last um, year that we had an in-person book festival, we run on a shoestring budget, like on purpose. Um, I used to run the festival for the universities, which um, we love them and we love their support that they still give us. But when they owned the festival, we kind of had to like spend money just for the sake of spending it. Um, And now that we are not of the universities anymore and we have to, you know, scrounge up our own money. the, The last time we did it, we, we pulled in, a sponsor that ended up being way more of a headache than I ever intended. And um, there's definitely, yeah, I mean, it's to be said for outsourcing that aspect of the work, I think. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm uh, I, yeah, this is an advertisement. If anyone wants to write grants for me, this is your chance. Um, but it's been fun. I mean, I, I would say that our, we were set up in the far reaches of, of North Carolina. So we're out in the Western part of the County. And so we see ourselves as a, for the region it's free people drive you know hours away Mm -hmm. we went virtual we suddenly had viewers in um japan and australia i mean we had people coming in from all over the place we we hosted an event with jeff vandermeer and carmen maria machado in conversation and um you know thousands of people from places that we would never otherwise reach so that was pretty cool that we've been able to expand our our audience in some ways too that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Uh, let's now dive into this excellent book, Bear Wallow. You say that this book is a memoir not only about your life, but about the life of a place. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by this? And then if you can, maybe point out a few other books that are about the life of a place. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that the question that I ultimately realized I was interested in in the book is how are we shaped by the places that we're from, mm-hmm. but that becomes a kind of circular uh, question because then you start asking, how do you shape those places that you come from? And so there's this kind of back and forth. Um, and so uh, I think a lot of the book is me as a, you know, 24, 25 year old trying to figure out who I am, but I realized in order to do that, I need to figure out where I'm from. And so I feel like there becomes this kind of reciprocal relationship between my understanding of a place and my understanding of me. And then sometimes those two are, um, are so connected that it's hard to pull them apart and kind of see the differences. And so I think what I was setting out to do in the book was to not only understand my own family history, but to understand the place that I come from in a way that I couldn't have passively, you know, I had to go dig through archives and ask questions and walk around. Um, and so I wanted to understand all of the identities that made the place that, that raised me. Um, I think I was, I had this kind of naive sense that there was like an identity, like an Appalachian experience or sort of, you know, one singular monolithic way of being. And so when I didn't fit into that mold anymore after leaving and living in other places and losing my accent and, you know, Hmm. um, I don't say you ends anymore. Like, I, you know, I felt like maybe I don't fit in because I don't fit that, that one version of Appalachia that I, I had in my mind. Mm. But the more you start pulling it apart, obviously, you know, it's way more complicated than that. So I think, yeah, that's what I was trying to do was understand selfishly a place to help me understand myself, mm. but also to, to know, you know, what's going to happen to that place next and how we need to think about um, the future when we think about the identities of the place. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Jeremy. You open your book by talking about one of your ancestors, uh, Abraham. Jeremy, how was this Abraham like a leprechaun? Abraham was a a strange character um, who got rich old. Um, And so he, by the time he was in his 80s, had moved into what was then sort of the frontier of North Carolina, which is um, right where I'm sitting right now, literally his, his grave, his headstone is about 500 yards through the woods behind me. Um, but at the time there was, there was really no one here. They had pushed all of the indigenous groups West and opened it up to settlement, uh, European settlement. And so he got rich, he had all this gold and he got paranoid. And so he spent a lot of time hiding it. Um, and, uh, the, the story, the ghost story of, of this ancestor is that he buried this gold and then died looking for it. And so somewhere beneath a white Oak tree in these woods, you know, maybe behind me, there's a pot of gold, uh, out there waiting. No one's found it, but you know, one day. Yeah. Can you give me the uh, coordinates for where you're at? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think people have come in with metal detectors. I mean, they've, they've tried um, to sort of tease out this myth and see where the the reality might be. But Mm -hmm. um, I think the, if someone did find it, they'd probably keep it quiet. So it may have been discovered and and never, never confessed. Truth. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Friends, this is a good time to mention the Crook's Corner Book Prize, what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Frazier calls the coolest book prize in the country. Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, the $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. 
For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. Jeremy, back to your book, Bear Wallow. When you open the book, you are teaching in an elementary school and your classroom is in a shared space in a single wide trailer behind the school. This is not an unusual setup, but why, Jeremy, are we setting children up in single wide trailers for classrooms? Is this ideal? No, I mean, I think we have, um, you know, we're recording this on the day when I, it feels like we might actually get a budget in North Carolina for the first yeah. time. And I don't know how many years is the news on the, on the um, headline. And so I think that we tend to have, or we have for the last 10 or 15 years, a really, um, we, we lack some, some forethought and foresight when it comes to education funding and we're sort of playing catch up all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, so many schools like the one I grew up in and the one I then taught in, um, are built for, you know, 20 years ago. Um, the, the happy ending to that story is that that elementary school has since been renovated and now has room for everyone. And they've taken out the, the mobile units as they called them then. Um, but yeah, I think that we, as a, as a state, at least in terms of our legislature has tended to um, put out fires instead of think about future. And that's unfortunate. I have two kids right now and one of them goes to his music class in the trailer and goes to, you know, his art class in the trailer. And so it's, there's also this just uncomfortable, um, I don't know, sort of metaphorical possibility of, yeah. of relegating um the arts and, and these sort of lesser important, you know, subjects out to the trailers. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the short answer is that we, we aren't planning for the future when it comes to education funding often. Yeah. Um, I have a five-year-old son. He's in kindergarten this year, who thankfully has a magnificent teacher, but my wife and I were doing some research and saw that North Carolina, um, as far as spending per student is 51st in the country because Washington DC is on the list. Um, not a good line. yeah and the sad the sad thing about that is you, you can go back 15 20 years and that was not the case you know we were in the middle of the pack um and it's just been a precipitous fall yeah um and there yeah without getting too political you can find a point in time when things shifted politically in the state and then everything and in regards to education started dropping off yeah yeah it's a shame um and hopefully it will get better well um Speaking of schools, Jeremy, I want to talk to you about the moment that you first entered the teacher's lounge of this school as a teacher. Uh, you attended this school, and the teacher's lounge had an aura of mystery and excitement. But what was it like when you were allowed to enter this space as a teacher for the first time? Not exciting. I, I just sort of, you know, when you're a kid and the, the teacher disappears, you think there's got to be something amazing behind that closed door. Um, in reality, it was like a, you know, a copier and a refrigerator and a hand-me-down couch. But, um, but the sort of exclusivity that, that I thought I would find there, the, the waterfalls and roulette tables or whatever I thought was going to be there, um, wasn't there. It was a tiny space where I ate most of my lunches. Um, and I think for me, um, you know, when I went back to teach at the school that I had, had been a, a student in, I had a hard time negotiating those two, two roles. You know, I was supposed to be a teacher, but I sort of still felt like a kid. Um, and so crossing that line into the teacher's lounge was my, my claim to being a teacher and not just a 10 year old kid. Um, 
but yeah, not as exciting as I thought it was going to be on the other side. Yeah, it reminded me of this time um, when I met Phil Lesh, the Grateful Dead's bass player in San Francisco, and he gave me a backstage pass to their concert. And I was like, oh, I'm going backstage. And I was so excited <laughs> to see like all the debauchery that was going on. And it turns out uh-huh. I was just standing behind the stage and I like couldn't even really hear. And it was like nowhere close to the, the so glue. You didn't even get to see their good side. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Well, thank you, Jeremy. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Jeremy B. Jones. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Jeremy B. Jones, author of Bear Wallow, which is published by our friends at Blair. Jeremy, there's a scene in your book where your teacher friend realizes that a student is missing and the two of you leave the school to go searching for him. Uh, What happened here and why did you do this? Is this normal teacher behavior? I didn't know, really. I mean, this was my first experience in an American school I had been in Honduras uh, the year prior to to the book. But, um, you know, I I figured there were pretty hard and and fast rules in American education, but um, yeah, when when one student who my this this teacher who I was working with happened to be my third and fourth grade teacher when I was a student, which complicated everything a little bit too. But she said that she knew the student should have been here, he wasn't here, mm-hmm. and so she said we should go get him. Um, and it felt like I needed to obey my former teacher but also I knew I was breaking a rule. Um, But so we went and we set out to go to his house because she knew he should be in school. Um, It became really clear to me and probably, you know, was one of the reasons why she was my favorite teacher then that she, her concern for her students was, you know, far beyond the, the job requirements. And so we drove to his house to see why he hadn't got, hadn't gotten there. It turned out he just couldn't get a ride. His parents had to leave early so we picked him up and took him to school. Um, and, and this teacher, you know, I was working primarily with um, a, a Latino population. This was an ESL class. And so a lot of the students were, were somewhat transitory. They were migrant families. And so they would come and go. Um, but if a student was missing for her, she had to get to the bottom of it. Um, and I think I learned a lot <laughs> from her about what rules are for and, when they should be broken um, as, as educators to, to kind of put our students first. And so we went and got him, we brought him to school and everybody was happy to see him. And that was like in my first week uh, at the elementary school. And so I learned a lot, I think. Excellent. Um, and kudos to the two of you. That's fantastic. I have a couple of relatives at TGSL and I can sympathize. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I'm hoping you can take a moment now to talk about the name 
Bear Wallow. Uh, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with your book or with the area geographically, can you tell us what Bear Wallow is and whether or not it involves an actual bear? <laughs> yeah, so I live in Henderson County, which is just south of Asheville. Mm-hmm. Um, and the highest mountain in Henderson County is Bear Wallow Mountain. And for me as a kid, so I, I sort of grew up at the foot of it. And so I could see it kind of everywhere. And it's a weird mountain to see because it doesn't round and peak at the top like you expect a mountain to do. Instead, it, it rises and then falls and then rises again. It's almost like a U on top. Um, and so I don't really know where the name you know has come from. We don't really have a clear answer. It's been... Um, the, the lore is that a, a guy named William Mills, who was one of the first European settlers, named it. But my, my theory, at least what I would like to think is true, is that uh, it, that sort of dipped out peak, that the idea was that a bear had kind of wallowed up there or wallered up there, as we say, um, and that like sort of dug it out. And so that, that might have been where the name came from. But as a kid, yeah, I had all this mythology about the mountain. It was cool to look at. It was there and big. And so I imagined there were, it was just covered in bears and they were like up there roaming and protecting the thing. Um, I've never seen one up there, but you know, they're, they're there. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I now want to talk about the concept of the pull. Uh, I come from a small town, though the small town I'm from is not that small anymore, uh, but I am familiar with the concept of the pull. What, Jeremy, is the pull, and did you succumb to it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I had a friend in high school. Who, we were nearing the end of high school, and he'd kind of noticed this trend of people ahead of us in school never leaving or trying to leave and then coming back. And so he, he said there was this pull that kept you here, and even if you tried to leave, you couldn't escape it. You would be pulled back. Um, and I was pretty determined as a teenager – to not succumb to it. I was not going to be pulled back. Um, I was going to live wild and, and, you know, sort of see the world. Um, but I, of course, the book is about, about the pull and about coming back. Um, and part of it for me was that I just had a lot of unanswered questions about who I was and, and who I come from. And I had what I thought was a really normal childhood of growing up on, family land where we've been for five generations across the Creek was my mom's family land where they've been for even longer. And I was like, yeah, everybody grows up surrounded in family on generational land. This is just what happens. And then when I left and realized that a lot of people don't know much about their family beyond their grandparents or have traveled their whole lives. And so um, when I realized how abnormal that experience was, at least in terms of an American experience, Mm -hmm. it raised a lot of questions for me. And then I went back. Um, then I did leave again. That's the sort of spoiler of the book, I guess. In the end, I leave again, mm-hmm. but now, you know, I'm talking to you from, as I mentioned earlier, Abraham Kirkendall's, uh, yeah. land. So I, I came back again. So I've, I've succumbed to it twice now. Um, and probably the second time will be, be the last one. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's not unique to my place. I think there are a lot of places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'm learning about here though, in Western North Carolina is that you don't have to be from here to be pulled in. I meet so many people from other places who say they drove through and something about the area just made them want to stay. And there are all these kind of um, people aren't totally able to articulate even what it is, but there's something about the experience here, the feeling here, the way things look that just make them, make them stay and, and, and never leave. 
Yeah, it is a beautiful area. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, so to close this interview, I have a couple of questions about the Civil War. Uh, and first, I want to address one of your students named Antonio. Uh, Antonio was tackling a section in a textbook about the Civil War, and I believe English was Antonio's second language. Uh, you made a very teacherly decision about how to handle Antonio's approach to this reading. Uh, can you tell us what you did and why you made that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if, if your, your experience was like mine, the Civil War boils down to a, a simple kind of battle between one side and another, um, depending on where you are. The reasons for that battle may be uh, taught in different ways, but of course, you know, we know that the, the fight over slavery led to this kind of terror in our country. But what I started learning when I came back as a 25-year-old and started looking into my family's um, own history, I found all of these examples of my relatives fighting for the Union and other relatives fighting for the Confederacy. And so even within families in this region, people would go to different sides. Mm -hmm. And I um, sort of dug into that more and more to see what was behind it. Of course, a lot of people in this region were, were frankly too poor to enslave people. And so the fight for them wasn't often over slavery, but it was something else. Um, so I was learning all of this on my own outside of class that in, in Western North Carolina and East Tennessee and Southern Appalachia, the dividing lines were messier and the, the, the war was sort of working in a, is almost a kind of proxy war for lots of other issues. Mm. Um, but of course, when you have a, a young student who is barely able to, to read English and mm. he's learning about the civil war and it's a really simplified, you know, blue and gray North and South version my my impulse was to step in and say like, no it's more complicated than this let's talk about all, all of the complexities but that wasn't possible so i had to just kind of let it let it lie and let it be what it was um hoping that you know at some point the the histories were able to become a little more nuanced as he got older and and uh had a little more hold on the english language yeah absolutely thank you jeremy and um, finally, and listeners, as is so often the case, we have barely grazed the surface of this book, but I know that you are looking forward to reading it, uh, and we are looking forward to getting you a copy. Um, but Jeremy, finally, I want to address Willie Griffin and his reaction to the lesson that was being taught at your school about the Civil War. For our listeners, can you tell us what happened here? And then please let us know if you think this situation and reaction of Willie's is indicative of the Southern children's population's thoughts surrounding the topic of the Civil War? Yeah, I had a, so my classmate in third grade, and, and just to bring it full circle, this the teacher in that class was the same teacher who took me on this illegal run to, to track the student down. Um, we were learning about the Civil War, and, and this classmate, Willie, was a a big kind of rough kid. I liked him, but he was a little bit, you had to be careful around him, you know, he was rough around the edges. And he lived at the, at the top of Bearwell Mountain. Um, and when we were kind of nearing the end of the unit on the Civil War, and we talked about, you know, the, the, how things ended, he, he raised his hand and, and wanted to know when the Confederacy won, when the South actually won. And, you know, the teacher, of course, said they, they didn't win. Mm -hmm. And it, it demolished him. I mean, I remember him crying um, both in the classroom and then later in the library. It just it, it, it leveled him. And I'd never seen him that upset before. Mm. 
Um, at the time it seemed just bizarre because I was like, you know, it's just a class. <laughs> what does this have to do with us? This was happening so long ago. Looking back on it, I'm, I'm fascinated by his investment in his sort of regional identity at that age. Um, even though the South for him had nothing to do with, with the civil war, it had to do with all of these identities, you know, in terms of like ruralness and, um, and he felt like all of that was washed away if we had lost. I think that's my, this is my read of it looking back. Um, I don't think that most, I, I'm sure there are students who have had that experience. I think a lot of students probably know or have some sense of how the civil war ended, but he has sort of been raised on this, this narrative of the South um, as the strong, we will rise again, victor in the, the story of American history. And that, um, that breaking down was also a sort of breaking down of him. And so the questions that interested me as a writer coming back to these, these memories was about um, how the places shape us, you know, how our regional identity can shape us. And if that identity falls apart, how does that, you know, break us down to, um, but yeah, I would hope that most students now <laughs> know what's coming when you start a unit on the civil war. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're even now in a, in a conversation about how history is taught uh, state by state and what, you know, what we're allowed to sort of say as educators and um, the ways that we talk about race. So there's just this real fight, I think, over, over our national identity and regional identities. And it does not want to engage in complexity often, I'm afraid. Um, and so what we're left with is people crying on the floor of the library. Yeah, and uh, what a shame. And listeners, if you're interested in that issue, I would ask you to refer back to um, the episode of this podcast with Jeffrey Garten about Richard Nixon deciding to defund education 50 years ago and how we've never gotten that funding back. Um, well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for writing this wonderful book. I know that our listeners uh, will be coming in for it shortly. Listeners, I have been speaking with Jeremy B. Jones, author of Bear Wallow, which is published by our friends at Blair. Jeremy, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Jeremy B. Jones for joining me. Copies of Bear Wallow can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.